This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara ong And I'm Ella Nelson, a second year at UVA. I'm studying politics and economics, and I'm an intern at the Center for Politics. My name is Rishi Prabhakar. I'm a first year foreign affairs major, and I'm in Democracy Fellow at the Campus Vote Project and Center for Politics. In this episode, we talk with Leah Askarinam, a senior editor at Grid News. Previously, Leah was co-author of the On Politics newsletter for The New York Times and editor-in-chief of National Journal's Hotline. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you can start by talking a little bit about what motivated you to become an election and politics reporter, and also if you can share with us a little bit about Grid News, which is a new venture, and and what you're excited to work on there. Yeah, I mean, I uh, am not, I don't think, the, the typical tale of a longtime political junkie who has just followed that passion for elections and politics uh, into their career. Um, I actually, uh, in high school and college was really into history, um, but was honestly kind of turned off by a lot of politics, uh, largely just because uh, I felt that sometimes political conversations would uh, revert to talking points. And, you know, I I grew up right outside Washington, D.C., had a lot of friends who uh, uh, had very strong political views that were very similar to their parents, which looking back, nothing wrong with that. That's the way that we all learn. Um, But it wasn't something that I seemed that that I wanted to pursue long term. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, And so I uh, ended up doing a few years teaching, uh, did some education reporting, and in the process uh, met Ron Brownstein, a veteran political columnist who's now at The Atlantic and CNN. And uh, he kind of showed me what political reporting could be and having an eye on history um, so that it's not just kind of the political back and forth or major talking points, um, kind of how politics is part of everything, education and general society. And um, that's how I became interested. Uh, What I've been able to do at Grid, uh, which is a new startup, started just a few months ago. Um, I just started uh, about a a month ago, Uh, got COVID my very first week. So I like to think of it as three weeks ago. (laughs) The first one didn't really count. Uh, It uh, were a, a group of Um, reporters and editors who are interested in making sure that people understand how the news actually affects their lives um, and making sure that people understand the ins and outs of what's happening. So uh, we're a collaborative newsroom that values expertise. And uh, once uh, basically in this political moment for the politics section, which uh, which I lead uh, in this pre-2022, kind of pre-2024, figuring out what uh, the political moment actually means and trying to look into the future without, uh, while basing our analysis in facts and um, being aware of what's speculative and what uh, we can actually hold on to as truths. So in August, Representative Liz Cheney became the seventh House Republican to fall to a Donald Trump-backed challenger since 2018. uh, Representative Cheney has taken a prominent role in calling for accountability for the January 6th insurrection and called the false claims of um, voter fraud. 
to what extent and where have Mr. Trump's endorsements mattered in the 2022 election and why? So it's funny, NPR, I think, came out with a report like this morning or over the weekend uh, going over uh, basically analyzing every kind of candidate that Trump has endorsed and figuring out uh, the exact numbers, which is funny because I've been answering this question for for a couple years now. And uh, NPR went and got us some real data, which was helpful. Uh, what they found sounds exactly what anecdotally seems to have been the case uh, when it comes to open races where there's not an incumbent, uh, Trump's endorsement is really powerful. Uh, it's especially in a crowded primary, what gets a candidate name recognition, it gets them a boost over the competition. Uh, and that endorsement is is really golden there. Uh, when it comes to backing challengers to incumbents or back or Republican challengers to Republican incumbents, that's where Trump has uh, more difficulty, which which makes sense, which we've seen with you know the Georgia governor's race with Brian Kemp. And now as we're looking toward the Alaska uh, Senate race, that does seem like that might be valid there as well, where Lisa Murkowski does seem to have uh, some momentum, whereas Trump's endorsed uh, candidate Kelly Shabaka uh, has not proven, or at least in the first round of voting, uh, didn't show uh, a whole lot of strength. So uh, I think what we're seeing is Trump has, he he is undoubtedly the most uh, powerful endorser in the Republican Party. Uh, but even that has its limits. Uh, and voters in the end know when they like their incumbents. Um, and so they're willing to Listen to Trump, I think, in, in more crowded races where, you know, it kind of makes somebody rise above the crowd. But when they really know their candidates, Trump's uh, endorsement, I think, is just one of many factors that uh, primary voters consider. How do you see the false claims of the stolen election narrative impacting the electorate and elections? That's, I think, the biggest question. Um, and... Uh, not just for 2022 and 2024, but for ever. Um, I think that uh, obviously faith in institutions has been declining for years. That's nothing new. Um, but it is concerning uh, that there is a significant portion of the electorate, not as big as I think, you know, Trump says it is, but a, a section of the electorate that uh, is repeating these that, that that has lost faith, or at least is saying that they've lost faith faith in the electoral process. Uh, in the end, it does seem like people are still coming out to vote. Uh, so you know, Trump in twenty twenty. Also suggested that the election would be rigged. Uh, Republicans still showed up. Of course, in the the kind of case study should have been the runoffs in Georgia, the Senate runoffs, where Trump had been saying that the election had been rigged. That's why he lost. Uh, and in the end, uh, you know, the Republican candidates uh, lost. Democrats won the Senate majority. But I'm not sure if that's as much because of a loss of faith in the electoral process, or if it's because Trump was just trashing his candidates uh, for two months and, uh, you know, people didn't show up. So it's too early to tell, I think, how it's already making an impact. Um, I think it's just concerning um, in terms of principle. And I do think that it will manifest itself in some way in the future, even if 
I can't tell you yet what that will be. We're looking and smiling at each other because we're another thing, another project that we're all working on together, along with some other students in this group, is tracking you know some of the threats that are a result of this as well. Um, so you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think what we saw on January sixth, um, even you know before that, what we saw in Charlottesville on August eleventh and twelfth of twenty seventeen, you know, I think that's not the end. It's just sort of the beginning of what we're going to see in terms of the future. And I, you know, I think we're deeply concerned about how we prevent <laughs> um, and encounter these, prevent and counter false narratives, radicalization, and political violence that we're seeing as a result of the false narratives. Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of, I mean, just like January 6th, that is obviously the the clear example of, of what happens when that rhetoric uh takes takes hold. Um, I think it's also, you know, not just that rhetoric, but just the kind of fanaticism over over Trump. Um, you know, having a, a single person who who uh, all of your electoral political faith rests in. Um, and so we, ha- you know, we've seen that even in the last couple months with uh, the FBI uh, search of Mar-a-Lago and some of the political violence that has resulted from that. Uh, so we are seeing it in terms of, you know, the way it actually affects people on a day-to-day basis, political violence. Um, in terms of how it affects elections, I think that's where it's, uh, that's where it's less clear at this point. Leah, you've recently noted, I think on Twitter, that, quote, the first-term president's party has lost House seats in every midterm in modern history, except for when the world uh, turned upside down, the Great Depression and 9-11. You have written about uh, the Dobbs decision, um, and, um, you know, you've left open the question of whether the Supreme Court overturning Roe falls into a category um, of similar events like the Great Depression and 9-11, and how that will affect this election being a referendum on the president. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the ways in which you're seeing the Supreme Court's as Dobbs decision impacting the electorate and elections this year. So we just have a few kind of data points to go from here. So, you know, I do want to be clear that at this point, um, there are, are a few different ways this election can go. It could still be a red wave. That's not out of the question. Uh, it could be a red kind of puddle, I think, as, as one publication put it. Um, or, you know, Democrats could end up completely uh, overcoming historical trends and keep um, the House and Senate. So any of those things could happen, to be clear. What's happened so far that makes me think that we're headed for a year that's not your typical midterm uh, is a few different data points. Uh, one is the generic ballot continuing to tighten. Um, That's the uh, general kind of polling question that pollsters ask, have always asked across the country, if there's a nameless Democrat, nameless Republican, uh, who would you vote for, for your member of Congress? Um, That number or the Democratic and Republican number has evened out in the last uh, weeks or months. Uh, in before a wave election, you wouldn't expect that to happen. And it's also a very clear change from pre-Dobbs or even just from earlier this year when Republicans were dominating that generic ballot. Uh, then we have a few special election results um, that, again, are not um, overwhelmingly predictive. They do not suggest that or they, they do not overwhelmingly um, suggest that there is not going to be a Republican wave, but they do 
uh, insert some uncertainty. The thing about special elections is that they're special. So, you know, you can't really use each one as a, an exact indicator of future results. It's going to be a different electorate, uh, different kinds of attention. You know, the special election in Alaska where a Democrat just won, you can't really compare an election with Sarah Palin running and happens to be the only general election that day for Congress to uh, on election day when, you know, there's 434 other races happening uh, for the House. Uh, But each of these different races, a couple different special elections, um, a referendum on abortion in Kansas, suggest that there is a, a democratic enthusiasm that was not there a few months ago, that was not there necessarily before Dobbs. Um, you would expect before a Republican wave for conservatives and Republicans to be dominating those races, um, and we just haven't seen that. Uh, we did see, you know, a, a year ago in Virginia, Glenn Young can win, um, but that was again pre Dobbs, pre the leak of the decision, um, and I think also importantly. Glenn Youngkin was skilled at keeping Trump off the campaign trail while also keeping him happy. So Trump was out of the scene at this that point. Um, Trump is Democrats' best uh, weapon for for uh, engaging their voters. Uh, so looking at all of that together, uh, there are signs that this wave is not going to materialize. And and I don't think it's that crazy considering when we've seen the party in power uh, perform well in the midterms or pick up seats in the midterms. Uh, We've seen it in 1998, in 2002, and then way back in the 1930s. So since the 1990s, this isn't a rare phenomenon. Um, This is something that has, you know, happened maybe not frequently, but it's not unseen. Um, And so it shouldn't be totally wild that a 1998 impeachment hearing would be that much more, uh, uh, would turn the world upside down more than a a major Supreme Court decision that uh, overturns years of legal precedent that is also going to affect, um, you know, millions and millions of lives. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question, Leah. You mentioned that Uh, Trump is Democrats' best weapon. And we've seen Democrats kind of, I would call it playing with fire this election season, Um, you know, kind of getting behind in the primaries, more Trumpian or pro-Trump candidates. I wonder what your take is on this strategy and how you think that might be affecting the elections and potentially the outcomes as well. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an age-old question. Uh, how much should the opposing party intervene in primaries? Because uh, we have seen uh, Democrats do this successfully before, um, not necessarily pro-Trump, but, you know, the, there's a good chance that, you know, Claire McCaskill wouldn't have won in 2012, Democrat, if um, Democrats hadn't gotten involved to promote the weakest candidate on the opposing side to win the Republican nomination. Uh, so it is a, a bit of a tried and true uh, strategy and when it is playing with fire, I do. I think that is true. I uh, and I guess it's you know Claire McCaskill was such a savvy politician that it kind of you know you kind of look at it and you're like, well, she could do that. Um, but seeing it done on a broader scale, it is 
I mean, it's definitely that there is a risk to that, I think, in terms of um, Democrats finding, you know, or electing people that they would like even less (laughs) than um, another candidate. That said, if, you know, there's very little separating um, a lot of these Republican candidates in these primaries other than rhetoric. Um, when they come into Congress, you can imagine a lot of them voting similar ways. That's not necessarily the case in the House, I'll say. Like that there, there is, I think, more of a spectrum there. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of this is happening. Uh, but I guess it's maybe – I guess the question is whether it's high risk, high reward – or if it's kind of low-risk, high-reward, um, just because it's possible that these individual members, you know, if they one Republican is elected instead of another, how much of a difference is that really going to make? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, so we've been watching closely the role of candidate quality in the 2022 elections, and you ro- recently wrote about it, citing a study by Kevin DeLuca, Uh, from the Harvard Kennedy School analyzing the electoral trends from 1960 to 2008 regarding the influence of candidate quality on elections. At the state level, elections tend to be influenced more by candidate quality than at at the local level. How do you view the role of candidate quality and character at both the statewide and local levels in the 2022 elections? I think that's, again, one of the big questions for 2022. Uh, It's a fascinating one because, um, as Kevin told me for this article, you know, it's hard to define what a good candidate is um, or what a strong candidate is. I think that his measurement was really smart um, using newspaper endorsements just because when we think about some of the stronger candidates of the last few decades, that is someplace where we've seen, um, you know, local editorial boards who almost always, you know, support the Democrat come out and support the Republican. I think that, I think that was a smart tool. Uh, In general, uh, in governor's races, I think, it's more likely for voters to take into account what uh, what the individual personalities are, uh, the individual policies. Um, it's a little bit less attention to partisanship. Uh, and I think that's because uh, when you're voting for governor, you're not voting for Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell. You're voting for governor. That said, uh, we are in a new political era. And we're seeing in places like Maryland uh, and in Massachusetts, Republican governors in Democratic states who were elected at the beginning of Trump's term uh, are are not going to be serving uh, after 2022. People like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts and Larry Hogan in Maryland. Um, They have kind of been proof that in Democratic states, Republicans still could have appeal if they're not attached to uh, the federal government. Um, But looking into the next election, doesn't seem very likely that those two are going to be replaced by fellow Republicans. And so I do wonder if the conventional wisdom about state candidates being less uh, a, a result of partisanship of the state and more about individual personalities could be waning um, as polarization increases in the country. So we know the economy always matters, but what do you view as other major issues driving voters to selection cycle and why? 
Well, yeah, the economy always matters. And I think the economy always matters in different ways, right? So like in 2018, Democrats talked a lot about pocketbook issues, but they kind of, you know, snuck healthcare into that. Um, so healthcare was an economic issue. Uh, in 2022, Democrats' biggest challenge is that it is inflation. Um Obviously, they've had some good news in the last uh, month with inflation beginning to calm down a bit. But depending on where you are in the country, you're still seeing uh, signs for gas prices that are significantly higher than what you're used to. Uh, And that's probably Democrats' biggest economic challenge this year. Uh, Otherwise, I think that um, abortion is probably going to be a major motivating factor, especially for women. which obviously is a sizable part of the electorate. I, I mean, I think that it's, I mean, healthcare always is always part of the equation. Um, but in governor's races, what I'm interested in seeing is whether in governor's races and state races, whether we're going to see abortion be an even bigger issue than in federal races, just because now that abortion is not, um, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, uh, states have a lot more power over those kinds of decisions, over uh, whether uh, women in their states can can get abortions. Uh, so I think it might depend a little bit on the race, but in general, I think economy rules all and abortion is what would make this um, – it, it, in 10 years, if we look back at this and say, well, this was another one, another midterm that defied historical trends, um, we'll say it's because of abortion. Taking it back to elections, we see that some states, including Utah and Alaska, have adopted ranked choice voting. Do you see this as an effective means to increase voter um, participation and efficacy? And how do you see ranked choice voting impacting elections? So I think the effect on voters, especially in federal elections, I'm interested in waiting to see. We're just seeing this being implemented in congressional elections uh, in the last, you know, the first uh, the first incumbent to lose to ranked choice voting was was in 2018, Bruce Paul Quinn in Maine's second district. Uh, so we're just beginning to see uh, how this affects uh, voters. It, it does seem like voters find the system to be uh, pretty workable. I think it's much easier to fill out the ballot than it is to understand the results sometimes. I remember when I first learned about ranked choice voting, I had to like watch a YouTube video and try to figure out, you know, round one versus round two. Um, but for voters, it's literally, you know, fill out your first and second choice, um, which I think is significantly easier <laughs> to understand. Uh I mean, it seems like in close races, it's probably going to make a bigger difference um, because, again, it has to go to the second round um, if it's if nobody reaches 50% in that first round. Um, and we've seen it make a big difference in some of these um, close races so far. So I guess that's my long way of saying we'll see. We asked this final question of all of our guests. What would you do to fix our political system? Well, uh I told I mentioned at the beginning um, that I taught for a few years. Um, I left teaching thinking that education was the most important thing to a functioning society, and I have not seen anything to change that. Um, investing in education, investing in teachers, um, 
volunteering, reading to students who uh, on the weekends, all of that I think is what makes, uh, what just sets people up for success individually. And I think when individuals are set up for success, it's more likely that institutions will be set up for success. Leah Eskarinam, Senior Editor at Grid News. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Listeners, you can read some of Leah's recent articles uh, with links in the episode notes. Well, thank you so much. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.